Uh, any Mets fans here? Anyone like the Mets? Okay. <laughs> I was telling first service that anytime I tell someone I'm a Mets fan, they always respond with, do those even exist? Uh, but I want to talk about the Mets this morning because if any of you follow the news and what's happening, we're actually doing pretty well, um, considering. So it's really exciting. We have a contention <laughs> at the playoffs. Uh, and I'm... One, so last week, I got to go to a game uh, with Mike Joyner, who many of you know as, as Mira's husband, and Derek Mercado. And Derek and I showed up an hour early at 6 p.m., and it was Free Shirt Friday, which is really exciting. Um, I don't know how many of you know this, but uh, for the first 25,000 fans, they give away a free gift. Free Shirt Friday, got a Jacob deGrom t-shirt. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, but what I would like to focus on in this story is Mike and his cousin were running super late, and Derek and I were giving them a hard time for it, um, and uh, he rolls up at the top of the fourth um, inning, and he has a jersey in his hand, two jerseys, and I'm like, what is happening here? He got a free Ahmed Rosario jersey for being tardy, which, if you know anything about these polyester jerseys, go anywhere from $50 and up. So needless to say, I thought it was pretty unfair that Mike showed up so late and got this great gift, and I was stuck with a uh, cotton t-shirt. Now, the reason why I want to tell the story is because I think what I was feeling wasn't too different from what the workers in the vineyard were feeling. So let's read this, shall we? In Matthew 20, 1 through 16, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them out into his vineyard. And about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. So he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Did you agree to work for a denarius? Take her pay and go. And I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. What do we do with a story like this one? I mean, can you imagine being in the situation if you were one of those, nine, uh, excuse me, the 3 p.m. or the 5 p.m. workers um, who showed up late, and you were given the same pay as the people who were paying all day, uh, or who were working all day. Could you imagine being a 9 a.m. worker and uh, receiving the pay, the same pay, as someone who showed up at 3 p.m. or 5 p.m.? So the parables, they leave us grasping for straws at times. And as Jonathan has said early in the series of the parables, is that Jesus is telling the people he's telling these stories to that there are no easy answers. But that isn't enough for us, right? So we need to uncover and dig what's happening. And to understand what's happening in this parable, just like in any of the others, we need to understand a couple of things. We need to understand who Jesus is talking to when he tells these stories. And we need to understand the context of what's happening in these people's lives, who's, who he's telling the stories to. 
So in Matthew, the audience who Jesus is speaking to is primarily Jewish. Uh, the chief priest and um, the Pharisees are the people he's really targeting uh, the story to and his message and also to his disciples. And what's happening in this context of the story is that the Romans were seizing farms from landowners and taking them because they were in such debt that they weren't able to pay the taxes to the Roman government. And what would happen when they weren't able to pay the taxes to the Roman government is that the laborers and the farmers who owned this land became unemployed. So they would go to the village each day looking for work. So when Jesus is telling the story, we start to have a better sense of why he's associating the kingdom of heaven with the scenario because it's something that they understand. It's something that they can relate to. And what we start to understand about the kingdom of heaven when he's telling the story is those people for, who are the 3 p.m., the 5 p.m. workers who are hired late and who weren't expecting to be paid the same amount as everyone else are getting a new message. They're getting something different that they've never heard before and that they're getting a sense that this heaven that Jesus is talking about might be one of provision. But Jesus answered them. He said, I'm not being unfair to you. And the word that he uses as friend in this scenario is a Greek word, heter. And it's basically like saying, hey, buster, take your pay and go. I've been gracious to you. I've paid you fairly. And so we're not, Jesus isn't talking to him as a friend, as someone who's near and dear to him. He's speaking to him as out of frustration, out of anger, that they're not understanding his message and what he has to say. And right before this, uh, before the parable that Jesus is t uh, speaking of, he's talking to the disciples, and he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? So this story and this parable are known as the parables of judgment. And the reason why they're called the parables of judgment is because these stories are leading up to the final weeks of Jesus' life on earth, to his death and his resurrection. And a couple of reasons why they're called the parables of judgment is for that reason, but also because of the fact that the Pharisees and the chief priests who he's calling out in this story are not accepting the grace that he has to offer. John 8, 25 through 26 gives us a glimpse of why Jesus is telling these parables. It says, who are you, they asked. And just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. Oh, there you go. Sermon's done. We've got all we need, right? No, we know better. We know that with the parables, the more we dig, the more we uncover. We need to keep going. These may be the parables of judgment, but Jesus doesn't end with judgment when he's telling the stories. He has a different end game than the one that the chief priests and the Pharisees have that he's used to telling. And if we look at these par parables in a sequence, what we see is Jesus starting with stories that are more mild in nature. And his, the points that he's trying to get across to them, they start with something that they can begin to understand, uh, but isn't really calling out or convicting them at, in really specific ways. And as the parables progress, he's now getting to the point where he only has so much time left on earth. And what he really wants them to understand is that his grace is for everyone. It's not just for the people who are, are, are showing up or only uh, giving equality to people who are there at the right times. And what we get uh, from Jesus moves beyond judgment also later in John 10, 14 through 18. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again and no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. Priest, author, and former New Yorker Robert Capon tells us in Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment that Jesus proclaims that his death is the operative device by which the reconciling judgment of God works. That the crucifixion is God's last word on the subject of sin. The final sentence that will make the world one flock under one gracious shepherd. So what Capon is saying is that uh, we have in this parable, and what's happening is Jesus is really trying to drive to what's happening in the context that he knows what's going to be leading up to Jerusalem uh, when he takes his last breath. So he's really honing in on his death and resurrection. So this gives us the frame of reference that we need to understand this parable. See, the story isn't about setting up new business practices. It's not about inciting jealousy or everyone getting more cash in their pockets. Does anyone find themselves siding with the laborers who showed up at 9 a.m., noon, or 3 p.m.? I know I do. I know that I find myself in this story going, what the heck? Like, these people need to be paid more than the people who showed up at the last hour of the day. If this happened to you guys, what would you do? I know some of you all would call the Better Business Bureau, right? And you would, <laughs> you would tell them, this is not okay. What is happening with this employer? We need to call them out. We need to close them down. And then you would go on Glassdoor and you would write up a, a scathing <laughs> review about them. And you would have a lot to say, right? You know why I think we have a hard time with this story? I think it's because grace isn't sexy. I remember one of our congregants' sermons, Sarah New, she said something brilliant that um, explains our view towards grace. And I believe what she said is that grace offers us a taste of something sweet and beautiful, and we make it bitter by our own accord. We choose to make it bitter. Capon puts it this way, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will buy case lots of moral advice, grosses of guilt edge prohibitions, skids of self-improvement techniques, and whole truckloads of transcendental hot air, but it will not buy free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the Lamb. And this lack of grace bleeds into other parts of our lives. How often do we operate in a mode of giving grace to others? If I'm being honest, I don't always operate by leading with grace. When you're frustrated with your coworkers and your boss who's being unfair to you, do you respond with grace? When you're in an argument with your spouse and you're frustrated with them, do you respond by being graceful? When your children are at the breaking point and they're on every nerve, every last nerve that you have, I've been there thousands of times, do you respond by being graceful? And if we're honest, probably not as often as we'd like. At first glance, this message also seems to be that we can achieve universal equality, that we don't have to be angry like the 9 a.m. laborers who are bitter and that their pay was unfair, but we know better, don't we? There are so many things unfair in this world, and there are so many things that make me angry. I'm angry because two weeks ago, the two-year-old of one of our best friends died in his sleep. 
And now this family has to figure out how to move on. I'm angry because my black loved ones get pulled over and are terrified of what the police will say or do to them. I'm angry because it's not fair that immigrants in our country don't have a fair shot of citizenship and a safe place to live. I'm angry because we have to teach our children what to do if someone with an assault rifle enters the school. I'm angry because I, as a white man, have more privilege than anyone in the room without even saying anything. The unfairness of it all is overwhelming, and I could stand here all day with a long list of reasons why. Is anyone ever angry? I'd like to show you this tweet that Science Mike posted recently. He says, Many white folks, myself included, were taught that everyone is equal. We internalized that message, and it taught us to treat everyone the same way. That message was designed to confront personal racism and sexism. This framing is counterproductive when looking at systems. He goes on to say with the follow-up tweet that everyone deserves equality, but people aren't treated equally. When we use, but everyone is equal, to counter the experiences and wisdoms of people, even groups of people whose identity yields discrimination by systems, we are guilty of whitewashing, pressing problems in our world. Someone who replied to his tweet by the name of Harmony Looper shared this image that displays what this looks like. You can go to the next slide, please. And I saw a couple of Im images uh, uh, that tried to display what's happening here, and I like this one best, and the reason why is because of quality. We say everyone's got a box, but as you can see, not everyone's got a fair shot of seeing what's happening in the game. With equity, what we have, building towards equity and giving one and moving towards the center of giving people rights, we say we're going to give you more boxes because you don't have the same shot. You see, we can't take from this parable that the message is that we've achieved universal equality because we haven't. Jesus wanted the Pharisees to know that grace doesn't come by rewarding the winners, and he does this when he tells them the parable of the unjust steward, the great banquet, the workers of the vineyard, and countless others. He flips the playbook upside down and he says, no one's outside of my grace and you guys don't get it because you've been creating the system of inequity and being unfair to others. And I'm here to tell you that that is not what I envisioned for humanity. That is not what I wanted to create. And I'm here to tell you that everyone is covered in my grace and that's it. And how does Jesus offer equity? Because in Matthew 20, 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. He's telling us that we're all in, no matter who we are and what we've done, that this was fulfilled when he died and rose again. This is the good news that Jesus is offering in this parable. What in the world are we going to do with it? The hard reality is that God intends, what he intends for us, is never going to be actualized in human-created systems. But that doesn't mean we stop. That doesn't mean that we don't fight for justice. In fact, it means the opposite. It, makes us recognize that we don't have equality and that we need to choose equity and that we need to fight for the rights of others. You go, we are the 9 a.m. workers in the vineyard. We are the people who shouldn't become bitter and we need to recognize that grace is for all of us and that the good news is available to the 3 p.m. and the 5 p.m. workers. Forefront Brooklyn has been a gift from God for our family. My mind couldn't ever comprehend that there would be a church like ours that relentlessly pursues serving one another and restoring neighborhoods. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for everyone here, regardless of orientation, identity, ethnicity, and tradition. All are affirmed, included, and invited us to join us in this Christ-following journey. 
And if you look at the values page on our website, you'll see that one of them is anti-racism. And that we say we follow the example of Jesus Christ who didn't treat people equally, but rather equitably based on their lived experiences within society. We prayerfully strive to do the same. I can't help but be grateful for the ways in which our church fights for equity. I can't help but think of the elders in our church who are always crafting our vision so that we move towards equity. I can't help but be thankful for the deacons in our church who are meeting monthly and always inventing new ways to restore equity in our community. I can't help but be thankful for the congregants in our church who I see are fighting for the immigrants in our city who are showing up and showing uh, our people how we can teach to create safe spaces in our community and in our city for immigrants. I can't help but be thankful for the congregants who are going out and serving the homeless each week. It doesn't go unnoticed. We as laborers are working in the vineyard and have an opportunity to work toward a new kind of grace, not one that makes a set of inequitable rules and, and divides people, but one that brings us together and, and helps us move towards equity and brings us to that center. The end of the story is not that we are divided, but that everybody's in and God's grace covers us all. That's it. Amen? Amen. Capon says we are saved, not by our successes, but in and through our failures, not by our lives, but in our deaths. For our so-called lives and our vaunted successes cannot be saved. They are nothing but suits of obsolete armor, ineffective moral and spiritual contraptions that we have climbed into to avoid facing the one thing that can save us, our vulnerability. The reason why I love our church is that we're not interested in having the right answers. We're more interested in asking the right questions. And the reason why I love that is because it leads us to a place of vulnerability. We have to be vulnerable when we ask these questions, and sometimes we're going to find ourselves asking things that are, might be offensive to other people, or that are offending us, or we might be afraid of saying the wrong thing, or asking the wrong question, but we have to enter into this vulnerable space to move towards equity. That is how we move to having an equal place for everyone in our church. So what would it look like if you began to be more vulnerable with people in our community? What would it look like if you're able to be more vulnerable with people in our church? When I talk about vulnerability in our community, I can't help but think of Mira, uh, who's our former community pastor and moved to D.C. with her family. Most of you know her. Uh, I was in small group with her for years, and when I think of our one-on-one conversations, she's always a person who would bring us back to having a space where we can be vulnerable. And in my small group and in the people that I've talked to, I can't count the number of conversations that we've had in our community where we talk about how to move towards equity and we talk about how we've been offended and broken, about how we felt like the 3 p.m. and the 5 p.m. workers in the vineyard because we weren't accepted and we never felt like we were going to be welcomed to a church again, but we showed up and we were vulnerable and walked through those doors. And I've talked to people who are privileged, who are the 9 a.m. workers, who felt like they didn't want to accept others, and then they saw um, the inequity of it all, and now they're in a place where they're ready to ask those hard questions. And I'm thankful for the additional friendships, the people who have called out inequity in our church and how we can move towards that center. 
the FFBK staff here, uh, we went out one night for karaoke when Mira was leaving our church. And it was a blast. And we sang songs that uh, ranged from every genre of music that you can imagine. And Angela slayed it with her <laughs> vocals. I, y'all, I could just sit and like, listen to her sing all night, and that would be it. Um, we, it was an amazing time. But uh, when Tom Petty's Free Fallen came on, <laughs> I'm a huge Tom Petty fan, self-admittedly. Uh, something happened that I can only describe as a spiritual experience. Because what happened was we all found a beautiful harmony. We all created this melody that sounded amazing. Uh, and we were all finding our place in the song. And it, and it was absolutely beautiful. And what it made me realize is that a song isn't a song without all the equal parts that make the music, right? It's not a song without... Uh, the baritone, without the tenor, without the alto and the soprano. And it's not a song unless we give equity to every single note in the music. And what happens when we give equity to those notes, they all come together to create something beautiful and indescribable. And I think that's God's vision for our church and what he's talking about here when he talks about equity. Because guess what happens? When we show up and we move towards equity, we don't have to fear that we're losing any part of ourselves. We don't have to fear that we're not going to be able to continue to being who we are, that we're going to lose our privilege, or that someone's going to be one-up us, or that we're going to lose our spot and our place of humanity. What happens is when we contribute towards equities, we create what God envisioned in this parable. And I'm thankful for those who have felt vulnerable coming to a church like ours, hoping for grace to be offered equitably, because the Christian church has labeled them as 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. workers who need to pray a little more or who need to serve a little more to be awarded that same grace. I'm thankful for our LGBTQIA plus folk, our trans community, our women, our people of color, and those who have been treated as 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. workers. I recognize that you exercise vulnerability every time you come through those doors as you practice the faith that has oppressed you. And the ways in which you've exercised vulnerability model strength for the rest of our church. And I have a few questions that I would like for us to ask as a church. And I actually drafted these with Mira. Uh, so we'll have to thank her later for helping me out. The first one, have we ever seen others as 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. workers that shouldn't be offered the same grace or same good news that we've earned? What are ways in which we can affirm those people and advocate for their equity? If you've been viewed as a 3 p.m. or a 5 p.m. worker, what are some ways in which you can receive the full pay for which you've been awarded and accept that you belong? And finally, what can we begin doing today that will work to further equity in our church? When we enter into vulnerability, it's scary. The reason why it's scary is because we fail. And what happens is when we fail, we clam up and we don't want to ask those hard questions because we think we don't have anything valuable to say or we're afraid or it's scary that we're going to say the wrong thing or that we're not going to be able to move towards equity in the ways that which we have envisioned. But what I've found and what I've seen in the life of our church is that when we ask those questions, we move beyond our failure, we move beyond our fear, we actually are moving towards the grace that God is talking about in this parable. The grace covers all. And so as a church, I want us to start thinking about more ways that we can move towards equity. I want us to think about ways in which we can bring grace to others who are on the fringes 
and who are the 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. workers, and I want us to know that God's grace covers us all, and it's for everyone. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for our church. Thank you for the blessing of giving us a community who do, does ask those tough questions, and who is more interested in discovering you in a vulnerable place than in being right and having the right answers. Thank you for everyone who comes through these doors and who chooses to move towards equity every single day. It's in your holy, precious name that I pray. Amen.